to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. Welcome back, devotees. We have Scott from now his plethora of podcasts. That's right. You have three. Plethora of podcasts. Hi, Courtney. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, we just discussed a cheerful case, and because I know I have a lot of notes on this, we're gonna we're gonna dive in. We're gonna bring it down. We're gonna pop that. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna take the baby's blood, pop it, and then give it back the scraps. Such like life itself. Just when you thought you're gonna be happy, no, no, no. We're we're gonna fix that. Yep. So, do you know what the holodomor is? I don't. <laughs> we're gonna. It's it's good. Okay. It's good. I'm, you're scaring me. The longer this goes on, I'm being more... Oh, we should all be afraid because we're dealing with Stalin. But So, the Holodomor is a Ukrainian word. Holod means hunger or starvation, depending on what context. And more means death or plague. Okay. So The worst kind of death and the worst kind of starvation. The worst kind yes. of plague is a death plague. It's a death plague. <laughs> um, and they've determined that it most likely derives from the expression... And again, I do not speak Ukrainian but I'm going to do my best. And there's also Russian in here, so you're welcome for the <laughs> pronunciation. Mortere uh, hodorom, which means to inflict death by hunger. That's pretty good, I think. Not the death by hunger, the pronunciation. I only took several classes by the same professor who taught uh, Soviet studies and Eastern European studies, so I picked up a little bit. Um, so the Ukrainian famine, it's only two years. It's from 1932 to 33. And these are the contested points, because we're going to immediately dive into the fact that it's problematic. The intentions behind the Soviet government on the initiation of the agricultural collectivization in the territory that led up to the famine, the natural causes of the famine versus state-controlled causes, and then the definition uh, of the famine as a genocide. Because, yes, that's not even clear that it's actually a genocide. I suppose... Now that you mention it, it's a genocide. Yeah, well, um, if it's if it's caused, certainly if it's caused by the government, intentional. It's just a matter of how you're killed, right? Yeah, and kind of Ukraine was the breadbasket of the Soviet reed, which is why it's currently still contentious today. Mm. So Ukraine, it's fun <laughs> when uh, Russia was still an empire, so not the Soviet, a different different type of empire. Whether or not they want to classify it, they pursued a tough left bank of Ukraine co- uh, colonization policy, which is Russification. And so this is why currently Russia's trying to sneakily take back part of Ukraine because they were like, there's a bunch of Russians living here, and it's like, yes, you put them there. Granted, it was centuries ago, but still. You put them there. And technically, Crimea was given to Ukraine by the second premier of Russia. So, and the whole goal was to try to destroy the Ukrainian national consciousness, but it didn't do that. And the Ukrainians fought for it. And in 1918, they managed to create a Ukrainian state, the Ukrainian People's Republic, and United Ukrainian Territory. Because long names. Soviet Russia. Right. We love the long names. Luckily for them, around this time, Bolsheviks come to power. We're not going to do the whole Bolshevik revolution because that's like three episodes in itself. I don't have time. <laughs> and they determined that they were going to do the policy of indigenization, aka for this sediment, it's Ukrainianization. Ukrainianization. Lots of zations. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Throw a stan on there too. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the non-stan countries of the Soviet Union. <laughs> There's a lot of them. And this was really because they had a hard time 
getting a stable communist regime in Ukraine. They like nationalism when you've been dominated by an empire for a while tends to come out. Right. I don't know why. And nationalism plus communism is oil and water. They repel, which is why nationalism takes down communism historically. And they were like, okay, they're giving more and more concessions to national sentiment. And they finally get successful in the Ukrainian Socialist Soviet Republic. And this is when the Soviet Union forms. And they're like, okay, it's an independent state. A lot of the states underneath the umbrella. And we get pretty much, they, they're doing okay for a while. But then we come to everyone's favorite Soviet Stalin. Everyone's favorite Soviet. He probably is. Um, he's He's got to be the favorite Soviet. Favorite's an interesting word, or the word there. Um, <laughs> the Romanovs, too, but that was obviously well over that. But yeah, for, yeah, in terms of the Soviet Union, for what, the hundred years or so that, uh, yeah, I can't think of many others that were, he's one of the more charismatic, I suppose, one of the more interesting. Yeah, it's him, Gorby, and yeah. uh, Brezhnev. Yes, yep, that's Are the true. ones most um, and then I can't remember who came after Stalin, but he's also very popular. But Stalin is kind of the, the cult of personality was there. Yes. He ruled for the longest. He set up the system. So Stalin exploited the centrist and uh, totalitarian tendencies of the Bolshevik ideology to then be like, hey, look at all this power. I'm going to take all this absolute power. Thank you. Good day. He put in re into place uh, the most extreme aspects of the domestic program of the war of communism. So that's we already see tendencies towards doing shady things coming back on a large scale. This means rapid industrialization, forced agricultural collectivization, which doesn't go well for a country that was very much not industrialized by the end of the First World War and uh, had separate farms. So collectivization for people who don't know is instead of everyone, say you have a grid, and everyone, every like each individual wants a separate person's farm. Well, collectivization says, no, now this is all one farm, and we're all going to farm it together, and we have to produce so much to like help the state out. And so instead of having individual people growing different things, they all decide together what they're going to grow, collective. But as anyone knows, forcing people to collectively do that, own the land for generations, right. And generations, and you're as far as anyone can remember, isn't the best policy. It's not going to go over superst or ever. <laughs> no. Yeah, it does. It gets interesting. So Stalin basically does this so radically and manages to become the unquestionable head of the Soviet Union and Communist Party in the area. So he's like, "This is happening. We're making this happen." Okay, guys. Cool. I don't care if you disagree. And remember what I said, Ukraine is the breadbasket. So there's a lot of farms there. And Stalin's like, you know what? To get the collectivization in Ukraine under, we, we're going to have to do end of independent cultural and political life in here. So welcome to Soviet right. life. Completely engrossing the culture, the economy, mm -hmm. families, the overnight practically. Yep. So we're going to go on an anti-Ukrainian campaign. Not great. They're going to take out the most politically vulnerable group in the Ukrainian society, a.k.a. non-communist cultural activists. Because you always go after the artists first, <laughs> I guess. That's true. This really kicked off with the 1930 show trial of the Union for the Liberation of Ukraine. Um, I'm going to get some Ukrainian in here. Suzez Vayanana Ukraini known as the SVU, an underground organization led by academic Sirfni Nerova, who, which was really, they're like, we're going to have this trial, but 
any non-Bolshevik cultural elite of Ukraine, you're either fleeing, you're going to the gulags, which isn't a great time. No. And there's um can't there's a really great book on the gulags, and if you literally if you type into gulags Amazon books, it'll come up. Gulag archipelago. That's what it is. Okay. And so if you're interested in gulags, and there's also great um, memoirs on it. It's gotta be some heavy. It's not a good bedtime story. <laughs> Sad thing is, I think it would be a lovely bedtime story, Does it but that puts you to sleep. It's not very all, comforting. No, but I I don't know. For some reason, one of one of the individuals in my cohort, that's what he studied. He studied the bitch war, um, which was a war in the gulags, and that is his academic name is called the bitch war. But he would just be like, yeah, like casual conversation. Yeah, um, this memoir had like sixteen gang rapes in it, and we're just like, oh, really, Adam? Like any particular reason like that's just my Mm -hmm. grad school experience is that and my office mate possibly he had to be careful because he possibly could get kicked out of a country it's fine um academia it's safe so then in this trial the leaders of the ukrainian academy of the sciences in the ukrainian should have picked another this word autophilatious orthodox church um were charged with also plotting to overthrow the rule, Soviet rule in Ukraine. So they're like, let's get everyone out. Let's get the sciences out. Religion. Let's get the church yeah. out. They're like, you're not Soviet. Bye. You're not Soviet. Bye. It works, okay. though. It always works. Any dissenting yeah. it, a perspective and whoever's left is too scared to do anything. Yeah. So this is why whenever people say, why do you listen to people who disagree with you? And it's like, because they have a right to their opinion. Yes, very true. Uh, yeah. So they purged the Academy of Sciences scientists were either imprisoned or entire institutes were shut down so and they disbanded the orthodox church which eastern europe basically turkey and east is going to be most likely the orthodox church not roman catholic and then on top of it all but two of its bishops and majority of its lay priests and at lay activists were executed or sent to gulags so we're going going great and this is really the end of the the first new economic policy. They do five-year plans. They love five years. I think they're all OCD in the Soviet Union because they're always five, ten-year plans. They're never like three-year plans, two-year plans. Ten-year plans, yeah. Yeah. They're five or ten. Um, had just finished, which was allowing peasantry to make si- significant economic progress and maintain their traditional lifestyle. But with the collectivization policy that followed, they received really strong resistance throughout the soviet union so not even just ukraine like like russia like straight up russians straight up soviets that have been Mm -hmm. soviets for a long time or russians for a long time yeah yeah and a lot of these people the crazy thing is they had just been released as serfs maybe 50 years before because russia's technically had slavery for a really long time fun facts um so how do they implement like why are they so mad about this new policy you could be wondering um pretty much take out old village leadership Bye. Any opposition. Bye. And then this was uh, done through the labeling in Ukrainian as Kirkler or Kulak in Russian, which was a well-to-do peasant. So basically, you middle class, bye-bye. You can't be it. Interesting. Uh, so just the serfs, just the impoverished wealth remaining. The, well, the wealthy, the wealthy, you probably already have been had everything taken from you. Right. Pretty much middle class and above, you you really don't want to be there. Um because you're, you're either gonna, yeah. yeah, you're gonna be either exiled, which could mean you leave the country or you go 
to their favorite place, the gulags, um, or you're killed, depending on the situation. And this, on top of it, it also applies to anyone who opposed the Bolsheviks, regardless of status. Ah. Yeah. So they're collectivizing. So remember, they're taking all the individual farms and they have like bigger farms. Well, that's not great. Because people have their own systems and mm-hmm. they're getting food in. So you have severe food shortages throughout the Soviet Union. And this would lead to mass starvation in Ukraine, the Northern Caucasus, Kazakhstan, and the lower uh, Volga region. So so there's not just one, but the Ukrainian one is a special case. Kazakhstan, it lasted three years, 1930 to 33. It destroyed over a million herdsmen, indigenous nomadic peoples, um, to institute the sedentary agricultural lifestyle. So they destroyed entire cultures and ways of life in collectivization. Uh, the lower Volga region famine affected predominantly ethnic Germans and Don Cossacks. And we're going to get to the main fatal one, the famine in Ukraine. So we have the collectivization happening and Ukraine's population is a little over 30 million. We're going to cut that down by a fifth. So oh, during this, wow. During two years. Two years. And this is all a result of their, basically, their, not really, but their economic policy just for the preservation mm-hmm. of the Soviet Union. Yeah, to change the entire life, like, that systemization. That didn't work. No, it that didn't. That was not a good plan. Oh, it, it gets worse. <laughs> um, <laughs> the unofficial tagline of my podcast, it, it gets, gets worse. It gets worse. It can always be worse, and it will be. Just stay tuned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... The Ukrainian nation had gotten some concessions made to the peasantry. And if you're making a war against the peasantry of Ukraine, which was the majority, it's basically like, okay, we're going to take on the Ukrainian nation. Right. Pitchforks. and Yes. They fought. The peasants fought harder against the seizure of their farms, destruction of their culture. Because, yeah, that's also happening. And desecration of their churches. Because, you know, the Soviets need money. Because let me tell you, World War One did a number on on the on Russian the Russian Empire, World War Two will do a bigger number, but World War One set it up. Their reaction was branded as Kulak nationalism and collectivization was the best way to destroy it and free the peasantry. So what do you do with that? You send urban outsiders into the village to force peasants onto collective farms and then seize grain for the state. Right. And now you're free. You're free. <laughs> you all live together. Clearly like you're you all free. have a, Yeah. And remember the fact that I said they're seizing grain. Because that's right. going to come up again. The real problem with uh, the collectivization was because they couldn't meet these unreasonably high quotas of grain contributions. And then you get put on blacklists. So basically, the Soviet state was like, you're going to produce this much grain. It doesn't matter if it's feasible or not. You're producing this much grain. Right. And then people would lie. And there was a lot of corruption happening. And mind you, this Soviet state is not yet 10 years old. Well, maybe 10 to 20 years old. So we're going great. Hmm. So if your collective got blacklisted, you get purges and uh, total blockade. So you cut off, cut off areas of the country or areas of the nation that are not producing what they need to and are not just way of life. The new, the new rules cut. And then you're left with what? This checkerboard decreasing productivity. Like it's not a great plan to begin with. Obviously these areas that are cut off, those are cut off from your economy for, for good. They're gone, right? Well, they basically, so you send the leadership away. So you don't have anyone who can like lead a resistance. They're guessing going to the Soviet's favorite place, the gulags. Um, (laughs) And basic, what I mean by blocking off is nothing comes in. 
They're yeah. still taking grain out. Okay. So that's a bye-bye collective. So just we're just going to black out that square because everyone's dead. Right. Um, so while this is happening, Soviet propaganda is like, look at these well-fed collective farm workers with smiling grain like, and they're taking all the grain. Like, they're they're not leaving anything for them to eat. Mm-hmm. So and they are slaves. They're economic slaves. Yes. Basically. We're going to starve the resistance out of... We see by 1932, which, when the deaths from the starvation begin to occur on a mass scale, all the kulaks had already been either liquidated, which means killed, right. or exiled to Siberia. And, our, like, the agriculture is pretty much collectivized at this point. So you have anyone who can resist is either dead or sent away. You have to be on these collectivized farms. And, uh, yeah, everything's fine. Right. It's going great. This is a great new idea. Good policy. Mm-hmm. Nothing to see. Yeah. Uh, Soviet, uh, the party continues to attack the starving peasantry pretty much through the press saying, like, look at it, like, because everyone is hungry, like the collective, it takes a while for the system to take over instead of doing, you know, all at once, if you're going to do it, maybe do like, here's a collectivized farm. You guys like make up the difference, slowly take everyone to that. No, they did the entire Soviet Union at once, which is insane. Um, and remember, I said they were putting out those posters that were like, if you've ever loved Soviet propaganda, like I do, because it's ridiculous. <laughs> They're all like, look at how happy we are. Mm-hmm. We're so well fed. Here's grain. And it's not true. Uh, The 1932 harvest, they were able to procure 4.3 million tons compared with the 7.2 million tons obtained from the previous year's harvest. So that's gone down 3 million. Yeah, but like half. Mm Mm-hmm. More than. They had been rationing in the towns, and that got cut back. And basically, throughout the winter of 1932-33, in the spring, many urban area people were starving. They... Had been supplied, like their rationing um, had been good because they could help out other people. But when it's cut, you also can't do anything. And you need the urban workers because they're also basically industrializing an entire country where, say, America and Europe, you started, they started in really hardcore in the 1850s and you had already about 70 years of industrialization. Right. Russia is trying to do that in five years. Right. Which is not possible. So why don't they bail at this point? Like what keeps these these guys, these leaders, these countries from just wait a minute, it's time for a performance review. Let's let's see that this is not one come up with something. Have you watched the miniseries Chernobyl? Not yet. Um, I heard something about that. I was all set. I was ready to go. And then someone told me about I'm one of those guys. You were talking about this on one of your last episodes. My wife stopped watching Game of Thrones in that first season when they killed the dog. Yeah. That's that's less me, mm-hmm. but my wife for sure. Didn't they do something to a dog? They had to go around killing all the pets um, in that yes. documentary? Yeah, the miniseries. I mean, they actually did it because they like they were so radioactive. Yeah, I get it. They had they had it was literally someone's job to go around. There was like three of them. They would go around and they'd have to make sure they got all the pets. Because they couldn't risk them. One, there were it. It was a large. It's a large area that they had to do. Right. And so, imagine that many pets. It's going to create problems. Um, that's not till later on. I think it's still really good. I would say also the podcast that accompanies it is really good because it explains that. the decisions they made. And it's only a couple episodes, but they discuss the Soviet Union and even Russia still today. They're all about saving face. It's it is the up. history. 
yeah. of Russia is they do not want to be humiliated. Right. That's that's true. That's like Stalin's first, not Stalin, I'm thinking of Putin now. People forget about Russia that their entire government has fallen twice in 100 years. So with all this other stuff that Putin's got not. But his prime focus, I think, is the pride of Russia. Always has mm-hmm. been, like with Stalin too. Um, even at the height of World War II. So, yeah, I, I see that. And it's like a it's like a denial, though. Like you're only hurting mm-hmm. yourself because you can see that this is not going out. And yet it never fails. All of them, the, the, mm-hmm. the most totalitarian nations, empires ever destroy themselves because they're, no, this is a good idea. And rather than admit we're wrong, we're just going to keep doing this. Yeah, this is all just saving face that collectivization is working. Right. Every, and uh, eventually I'll have to cover it. Uh, Mao's industrialization process and all that they the people knew it wasn't working like they were trying to make steel and villages and it just wasn't working but they keep going on until like they can't they they run out of people right like it's kind of what happened and i mean the soviet union has a lot of people it's how they won world war ii you eventually just keep throwing people at them and someone's running out of people uh so yeah that's why they did like also it's for the lower like Say you're in charge of a region. Well, you don't want to go up to your boss and say you failed. Yeah. You're like, oh, no, we're good. Numbers are good. Because you're going to end and up it, in the gulag with, every, with your yeah. predecessor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what Chernobyl did really well is like showing what happens when you don't do the save the face thing. Because ultimately, our two main characters in that are two main let's say characters. They were real men. The two men, they eventually were like, no, we can't keep doing this. Right. Like. Granted, they didn't do it in front of the world stage. They just did it in a trial. But it does it even to other Soviets. It doesn't look well. And to some degree, that's probably what led to the first place, the event happening by itself. Because they're not going to mm-hmm. ask for help. They're not going to seek outside. Like with their space program, that's what happened. Is eventually they couldn't do it by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of something's wrong. They aren't willing to fix it until something catastrophic happens. But we have to pretend that everything's over just like America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. So at the same time, urban residents are starting to starve. The workers, the agricultural workers or peasants have already been starving. The Soviet propaganda machine shows workers um, ag prop movies where it's like, oh, these peasants are counter-revolutionaries they're hiding the grains and the potatoes for when the workers who are industrializing and building this great new nation are starving so they're pitting the urban centers against the rural areas and they're both starving to death Hmm. uh the first time we get reports out that there are mass malnutritions and deaths from starvation were two areas of the city of uman in january 1933 and this is in the venisla and Kiev Oblast, so like regions. And there were, there did end up being Western journalists and people who were in the area at that time. Doc, I mean, there's, I'm probably not going to be able to share the pictures because Facebook will yeah. tell me they're horrible. But you can look up. There are just people, like, there's just dead people in the streets. Like, it's, it's really bad. By mid January, the reports of the mass difficulties in the food urban areas. <laughs> really? Is that what they called them? Yeah. Mass difficulties mass difficulties um and because they had been undersupplied through the rationing system and of course you know they're not really reporting it accurately good old soviet reporting it and then they were also people who had withdrawn from the rationing supply because it was to comply with the central committee 
of the Communist Party of Ukraine decree December 1932. So there's also a decree that some people have to withdraw. Then we have, in February, reports from other authorities of the Dipropnik Oblast, and I definitely did not say that right, um, that they're on top of the starvation. They're also getting epidemics of typhus and malaria. Nice. Just can't catch a... Nope. And then Odessa and Kiev Oblasts are reporting that as well, and we're on top of it getting mass reports of starvation by march in the kiev oblast so like these whole like it's entire regions that are just there's no food very little food on top of it the government raises the requisition quotas for the grain even higher and only in ukraine sent special brigades to find and remove any remaining foodstuffs and livestock wow so remember that picking on ukraine especially after all this ukraine and russia have a very unique relationship in that they've both had positions of control at points in history and ukraine was a has been absorbed and kind of like the little brother to russia for so long but ukraine has its own rich heritage and it's wonderful and they want to be their own country and this is how step siblings as it were yes kind of and they both want to be their own person i don't know what the end game is though like what's the what are they hoping is gonna change this we're just gonna keep doing this until what ukraine is compliant right but even if ukraine were they're still gonna have the output in there and the rest of the soviet union so it's like it's it's especially as they like raise now the output demands um, which they know aren't going to be met because their output demands now aren't. So it's like, what are they hoping for? But remember, there's also that chain of lying that's happening as well, where one official saying, yes, we're producing this. The next official says, yes, we're pro- yes, 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 right. yes, all the way up. So no one actually knows how much. I see. Like, so until it, as, as with like a monarchy, it's like the king thinks everything's good because no one wants to tell him it's not. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then sometimes, this is what I love about the Soviet system, they lie and say they're producing more. Right. So that's probably why they raised it. The Ukrainian communist officials led by Mykola Skrednik protested to Stalin that people were actually dying. So they're trying to inform Stalin like, hey, this is not working. We're having like mass deaths. Stalin, who's like, you know what? We've had a lot of problem with that Ukrainian nationalism, publicly blames the Ukrainian party for its criminal negligence in failing to meet the grain quotas. Hmm. So what does he do? Good old Stalin fashion. He sends uh, Vyacheslav Motolov uh, and Lazar Kazovich to dictate the policy to the Ukrainian Communist Party and its government. And on top of it, he sends his close ally, Pavel Posyev, to Ukraine as a virtual dictator. So he's sending his friends down like, hey, make sure this shit gets done. And uh, nationalism is gone. Okay, thanks. (laughs) Which, I don't know if you know how hard it is to get rid of nationalism. Yeah, and the, the more you try, it tends to be more stubborn. Look at Poland. Yep. Poland wasn't a country for most of, like, the 18th, 19th century. Briefly between World War One and World War Two, and then Russia and Germany solved that problem. And for all the, um, like, for all the, the crap that people gave France for surrendering so far, too, mm-hmm. it was the French resistance that, you know, never really went away. It was underground, but it really helped, you know, when things got tough. The Nazis. Yeah. It really helped the Americans, really helped the Americans especially, the Russians. Yeah, you can't kill it. You can't just go in there, send three guys from Soviet, the Kremlin, and say, yeah, you're going to do this now. Okay, sure, you're right. Why didn't I see that before? You know, <laughs> It's because we never think of nationalism always as a good thing or a weapon, but we've weaponized it so many times because people like, we collectivize around ethnic groups or 
we countries. It's just what, what we, we do as people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Postyayev ordered even more grain to be collected. Again, remember, I said they're going to send people in, like soldiers in. They're going to just go. They're tearing apart your house and taking any food you have. Finding the grain. Mm-hmm. Under his rule in January 1933, it was described as the Ukrainian death side, uh, countryside became a vast death camp. On top of it, he's carrying out Postyayev is carrying out a wave of terror against the Ukrainian intelligentsia and basically hounded the head of the party, uh, Sternekev, to suicide. Wow. So this is not going well. No. And it's going to get worse. So they purged the Ukrainian Communist Party. It Really, only a couple have survived. Stalin should be known for his purges. He's a big fan. He likes purging things, his documents, people, countries. So by mid-April, 19- the Kiarov Oblast has reached the top of the most affected list. When you have to have an affected list, it's not great. No, yeah, where's the, it's like a Letterman top 10 list of my empire's worst of the worst places. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we have also on that list Kiev, which we all know is now the capital of Ukraine, so uh, Dnyepetrovsk, Odessa, Venesov, and Donetsk Oblast. On top of the Moldovian uh Soviet, oh, is it Soviet state? The Republic next door with us. It's SSR by abbreviation. Um, so you kind of can't hide that you're starving to basically two republics. So it begins to leak out about the mass death and it's the less affected areas, uh, the Chernov Oblast and the northern parts of Kiev and Venisov Oblast are doing okay. My favorite is <laughs> the Central Committee of Ukraine decree of February 8th, 1933, said there is no hunger cases that should have remained untreated because we're rationing again, guys. It's fine. It's fine. Wait, what? There's no hunger because we're rationing? Yeah, that's basically what they said. Okay. The Central Committee of the Communist Republic. Interesting logic. Said that, that, yeah. Again, they're saving face. They're like, because people are starting to ask questions and they're like, there's, we're rationing so everyone gets food. Guys, it's fine. Wow. And then, like, they just pull a curtain over Ukraine. <laughs> exactly. Don't yep. look. No starving people there. <laughs> so they're now getting local authorities to submit reports about the number suffering from hunger, uh, reasons for the hunger, number of deaths, food aid provided from local sources, and centrally provided food aid required. They're managing a parallel report, uh, reporting and food assistance in the Ukraine, and you can actually still go and see these reports. They're available depending on how Russian archives are going to be. Right. Ukrainian archives, I think, are slightly better, but you still need bribe money. Um, the Ukrainian Weekly, which was tracking the situation in 1933, reported that on top of the fact that everyone's starving, there's difficulties in communication and like getting the word out. We also have widespread uh, cannibalism documented because, you know, and I have a whole section of eyewitnesses, so it's going to get darker. These people, some of these people, uh, they might have just passed, but, like, they did a really good job. There's oral history projects on this numerous, and I'm going to share some. But you have to think, okay, are you going to are you gonna eat a dead person, or are you the dead person? Sure. At this point. Yeah. We, we have a documentation of a woman doctor who wrote to a friend in June in 1933. So, again, it's not done. Uh, that she had not yet become a cannibal because, quote, not sure that I shall be one by the next time my letter reaches you, end quote. The, the good people died first. Those who refused to steal or prostitute themselves died. Those who gave food to others died. Those who refused to eat corpses died. Those who refused to eat, kill their fellow man died. 
parents who resisted cannibal died before their children. Hmm, that's and, rough. That's rough. Oh, it, it, it gets, gets worse. worse. <laughs> the Soviet regime printed posters declaring, quote, to eat your own children is a barbaric uh, act, end quote. That's, uh, that's good parenting advice. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So they're, good, good they're advice. basically saying at that point, Guys, it's not that bad. You don't have to eat your kids. Stop telling everybody else you're eating your children. You don't have to do that. You're fine. We're rationing. We're rationing. Right. Um, yeah, because you know they're reading letters because the Soviets love surveillance. <laughs> They've determined that more than 2,500 people were convicted of cannibalism during the Holodomor. Wow. Convicted? So they were trying these people? Oh, of course. What? Yeah, well, yes. Huh. Who doesn't love a good show trial? It's an interesting, yeah, uh, trial. Like, what's the evidence? I guess... Your neighbor we disappeared. Saw you eating, we saw you eating a dude's arm. <laughs> I guess that, yep, there you go. Wow. Yeah. Posyasev has determined that the Ukrainians had la- at last been broken of their horrible nationalist tendency, and he allowed the peasants to keep part of the what they harvest in the fall of 1933. Keep part of it. That's nice. Part of it. Very magnanimous. Yeah. So you don't have to eat your kids until spring. Mm-hmm. It gradually subsided, so didn't stop right away. So that's why it's about two years. Um, having claimed about three to six million lives, according to ongoing research, uh, the official Ukrainian government estimates it a little higher, about seven to eight million lives. And that could also count like lasting effects of the starvation, because what people don't tell you about that is you've starved for that long. Right your body's kind of broken. Isn't it amazing with like this and Holocaust numbers where our rounding errors are like give or take a million, two million, three million, where now it's so exact and we would document everything hopefully much better now, but the documentation either didn't exist or hasn't survived. So we have like no earthly idea, like millions of people give or take. This one, it was, I'm sure they documented it as best they could, but it's, again, those documents have, vanished the germans they destroyed them because they love taking good records we know that's true there's documentation that they did when you entered and they knew who they were unless you were killed randomly it's just where did those documents go because they were so obsessed with like the concentration camps of being so efficient how efficient Mm -hmm. can we possibly that's true probably not as well documented here but if they're having trials and Mm -hmm. others there was some documentation. Just amazing. Give or take five, ten. It's like, wow, that's a lot of people to be unsure, you know, of what happened. Yeah, I'm guessing the documentation is either in a Russian archive. And I know for a fact from people who've gone, they, when they're requesting funding to go do archival study, they include bribe money. Mm-hmm. Like they budget in bribe money. And... My other favorite thing is you have to pretend like you're not interested. Like straight up, we had a class and it was like someone came in. They're like, yeah, so like Latin America, um, like some areas in Eastern Europe, probably China. You you just act like you're not. You're like, I'm kind of like thinking about this. But, you know, then you slip a couple hundred bucks. And by the way, where's the section on the genocide? <laughs> it's like, here's. Yeah, because uh, my friend almost had a bribe someone in Mexico City, but her advisor knew like the staff and like she called them and helped her out legitimately you have like it's weird but sometimes in research situations you have to bribe your way to get the documents you need yeah those could be destroyed though i guess in this case those records Mm -hmm. you think or or, they're just lost do you think they're still somewhere in the soviet some basement i think if they're in ukraine they would have published them yeah that's true unless it had ukrainians involved right because that's um right a gray area 
they're putting it as a Russian induced. But if it's in the Kremlin, oh, I'm sure they still have it. Some. Someone goes down and just like when they're thinking about Ukraine, they just go down there and stare at them. And, I don't know, pretend they're a villain. It's like I, I imagine the Vatican vault, the Vatican library. <laughs> oh, I've heard it's amazing, Ben. God. But are you ready for some some real life accounts? Is there gonna be sunshine? Nope, no sunshine. Nope, okay. nope, nope, nope. Ain't no sunshine. All right. Uh. Yeah, go back and listen to Scott's episode after this is basically if you want some sunshine. Just don't go to bed right away, I guess, maybe. Yeah. Because I'm going to have pretty bad dreams about cannibalism. Yeah. So, okay, quote, please return the grain that you have confiscated from me. If you don't return it, I'll die. I'm 80 or 78 years old and I'm incapable of searching for food by myself. So this is a petition to authorities by I.A. Quote, I saw the, sav- uh, the ravages of the famine of 19... 19- 32 to 33 in Ukraine. Hordes of families in rags begging at the railway stations. Women lining up, uh, lifting up to the compartment with their starving brats, which with drumstick limbs, big cavernous heads, and puff bellies look like embryos out of alcohol bottles, end quote. This is from Arthur Kessler, a famous British novelist, journalist, and critic. And he was in Kavardik during three months of the famine. And you can actually, he wrote about his experiences in the book, The God That Failed, which has testimonies from ex-communists and stuff like that too. Our father, quote, our fathers used to read the Bible to us, but when he came to the passage that mentioned a uh, bloodless lore, he could not explain to us what the ter- that term meant. When in 1933, he was dying from hunger, he called us to his deathbed and said, this children is what a, that is what, is called a bloodless war, end quote. And that's remembered by Hannah Doroshenko. Quote, what I saw that morning was inexpressibly horrible. On the battlefield, men die quickly. They fight back. Here I saw people dying in solitude by slow degrees, dying hideously without the excuse of sacrifice for a cause. They had been trapped and left to starve, each in his own home, by a political decision made in a far-off capital around conference tables and bank- conference and banquet. There was not even the consolation of the inevitability to relieve the horror, end quote. And that's um, Viktor Kravashenko, a Soviet defector. From, quote, from 1931 to 34, we had great harvest. The weather conditions were great. However, the grain was taken from us. People searched the field for mice burrows, hoping to find a measly amount of grain stored by mice. And that's Mikola Karpshov. Yeah. Like, they were, it wasn't that they were having bad harvest. It was just everything was taken. Being taken. Quote, I still get nauseous when I remember the burial hole that all the dead livestock was thrown into. I still remember people screaming by that hole, driven to madness by hunger. People were ripping the meat of the dead animals. The stronger ones were getting bigger pieces. People ate dogs, cats, and just about anything to survive. End quote. By Vasilia Borisina. Quote, people were dying all over our village. The dogs ate the ones that were not buried. If people could catch the dogs, they were in the neighboring village. People ate bodies that they dug up. End quote. That's uh, Morieva Morosova. Wow. I'm going to skip down to one of the bigger ones. <laughs> quote, where did all the bread disappear? I do not really know. Maybe they have taken it all abroad. The authorities have confiscated it, removed from, removed from the villages, loaded grain into the railway coaches and took it away someplace. They have searched houses, taken away everything to the smallest thing. All the vegetable gardens, all the cellars were raked out, and everything was taken away. Wealthy peasants were exiled into Siberia before the Holodomor during the collectivization. Communists came, collected everything. Children were crying, beaten for that with, that, with the boots. It is, it is hor- uh, terrifying to recall what happened. It was so dreadful that every day became engraving and engraving in my memory. People were lying 
everywhere as dead flies. The stench was awful. Many of our neighbors and acquaintances from our street died. I have no idea how I managed to survive and stay alive. In 1933, we tried to survive the best we could. We collected grass, goosefoot, burdocks, rotten potatoes, and made pancakes, soups from putrid uh, beans or nettles. Collected clay from the tree and ate it. Ate sparrows, pigeons, cats, dead and live dogs. When there were still cattle, it was eaten first, then domestic animals. Some were eating their own children. I would have never been able to eat my child. One of our neighbors came home when her husband, suffering from near starvation, ate their their own baby daughter. The woman went crazy. People were drinking a lot of water to fill their stomach. That is why the bellies and legs were swollen. The skin was swelling from the water as well. At that time, the punishment for a stolen handful of grain was five years of prison. What was not allowed to go into the fields the sparrows were pecking at the grain, though the people were not allowed, end quote. And that's um, Alexandra Roloskovsky. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Nobody, like, we have no way anymore, if you, well, in a first world connected society, mm-hmm. we can't relate to that. Like, we can't even relate, to, I don't feel like here in our country, especially to the image of what that is like. But yeah. that wasn't that long ago. I mean, that was uh, less than 100 years ago. Yeah. I've got two more, and then we'll talk about whether or not it's a genocide. Because, again, that is still debated by some people. Quote, the famine began. People were eating cats, dogs in the Ross River. All the frogs were caught. Children were gathering insects in the fields and died swollen. Stronger peasants were forced to collect the dead to the cemetery. They were stocked on carts like firewood, then dropped off in one big pit. The dead were all around, on the roads, near the river, by the fences. I used to have five brothers. Altogether, 792 souls have died in our village during the famine. Warrior, 135. That's Antonia. So that's 700, over 700 people died during the Holodomor. 135 died during the war years. That's just the comparison. It's It's bloodless war. Like that one Mm -hmm. said. Yeah. Okay, the last one. Quote, I remember the Holodomor very well, but have no wish to recall it. There were so many people dying then. They were laying out in the streets, in the fields, floating with the flux. My uncle lived in Derveka. He died of hunger, and my aunt went crazy. She ate her own child. At that time, one couldn't hear the dogs barking. They were all eaten up, end quote. And that's Galina Smyrna. So I think that... One of the really good things, like I said, there's oral history projects. So you can go see individuals who live through it discussing this and talking about it. And they have written accounts, all of it. And because like a lot of these, I'm not going to say controversial, contested genocides, I'm going to say, because most, there's a larger consensus that says, yes, this is a genocide. And then there's the small populations who tended to have implemented it that say, no, it wasn't a genocide. They, there's so much evidence that they came in and took it, that you're like, how is this not? Right. So we have, at the time, and this is from Walter Durney, who worked for the New York Times, and he's a Pulitzer, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, wrote of the famine, quote, any report of the famine in Russia today is an exaggeration or malignant propaganda. There is no starvation or deaths from starvation. There is a widespread morality from diseases due to malnutrition and so you have these journalists who are taking that soviet propaganda they're eating it up and they're publishing it and then we have the accounts of people who were there who were like they're literally holding their children up to see if they can get anything or someone will take eating their children when was that new york times story written um that one was from the time it was from the 32s yeah 
So when basically just mm -hmm. being reprinting what was probably told inside of the story. Yeah. yeah. That wasn't like a historical analysis done after mm -hmm. that was. Yeah. No, that was that was what the Soviet authorities were putting out. Right. On top of it, the Soviet Union is refusing any aid because their official party line because is Russia. There is because no Because Soviets. Yeah, exactly. Um, there is no. Family. If you if you claim contrary, it's. You're spreading anti-Soviet propaganda. Right. And Western governments really were passive because no one really was aware or they were aware through confidential diplomatic channels. So if they say it, they're getting their sor their friend, their source killed. So True. it's like... Yeah. And there's obviously no CNN footage of this mm -hmm. on any TVs that don't exist yet. So, But we're still passive to a degree today. Like if it's happening other side of the, the planet, we tend to try to freak. Yeah. Um, so it's, remember, it's 1933, FDR just gets elected, and he had decided to formally recognize the Soviet Union and Stalin's government specifically and no, negotiated trade deals. So you don't want to just mess up that relationship with your new trade partner. Right. Yeah. And no one, how many Americans knew what was going on yeah. at that time? If any in government, if FDR. And, you know, it's, do you want to mess up the trade deal in order to deal with the famine? In most right. countries, especially at that time, weren't going to and then now ukraine um emigres after this really pushed to be like this is a genocide this was a genocide of the ukrainian people and it didn't really get success until you want to guess you want to guess when it when people started believing um yeah. man probably well it would have to have been after stalin or after maybe the fall of the soviet union was it that late a little bit so maybe <laughs> said it gets worse so it's relatively recently after the Berlin Wall. So is it? Is it like? It's not like two years ago. No, no, okay. no, no. It's not two years ago. Uh, the late eighties. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I mean, when the curtain went down, that's when mm -hmm. anybody outside of Russia finally had a view of those, some of those files, some of those records. Yeah, it really was with um, the publication of the book "A Harvest of Sorrow" by Robert Conquest, and it was also made into a report to the UN Commission on the Ukrainian Famine, and they also had the findings of the International Commission of Inquiry into the 1932-1903 famine in Ukraine. On top of it, they released uh, the documentary Harvest of Despair to bring attention to it. So this was which, like a rumor at best for fifers. Yeah. Especially in the West. Mm -hmm. Wow. There were some people that had brought it, so it was, I think if you were in academic circles... It was kind of known about, but you really, it, you couldn't do a lot of research on it because anytime you would be published, you can't go back. Right. I, I didn't work with one professor, but he's banned from going back to China because of his work on, I believe, the Uyghurs. Like, it still happens. If you publish mm -hmm. things, they're like, mm -mm, you can't come back. And I feel like in the Soviet situation, there might have been a bullet involved. Hmm. So... It really comes out because you like Soviet Ukraine didn't talk about it. Independence in '91 basically was a run on the archives for academics, mm -hmm. and yeah. I know people who they said, "Yeah, no, fall of the fall of the wall." You're like Western academics were on that, like yeah. getting visas going in there, because um, really, they were like, "I think you probably had to pay some, but." Yeah, go in, take pictures. It was like we the, don't it care. Was a land grab. It was like, we're going to go mm -hmm. get it before they're destroyed or before someone else takes them. Or, yeah. Yeah, people were going to see the records the KGB yeah. had on them and who reported on right. you. Right. Like, that's the crazy <laughs> thing. You could look up and see, like, your neighbor said this shit about yeah. you. It's insane. Yeah. 
So the archives open up in 91. They work on oral testimony from living survivors. And pretty much that is proof that it's a genocide. In November 28, 2016, Verkhovna Rada, the, um, the parliament of the Ukraine, passed a decree defining the Holodomor as a deliberate act of genocide. But I said it's contested. Mm-hmm. Who do we think's contesting it? Um, do the Russians still contest it? to this day yeah yeah anybody else not really yeah it's the testimony and you watching it it's just right it's it's it when they're going into your house and taking every scrap of yeah like pulling like looking for high this is people would hide food like you were like others were hiding the jewish population and dissidents in occupied germany areas like that's how bad it was right like you would just and they would look for it and the times they found most of it so the Russian government continues to call the Ukrainian depiction of a, the famine, quote, a one-sided falsification of history, end quote. It is recognized um, in the article I found as identified by approximately two dozen nations is now the focus of a considerable international research and documentation. Yeah. So really the only people who are still like saying it's one-sided are the Russians, but... But it's still being studied. It, yeah. Because we didn't figure out it happened really until 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. And I found out about this in I've a never college heard of class. This. I've never freaking heard of this. I can't believe that. But no, I haven't. No, it's cr- it's just crazy to think. Literally, if we're going with the highest number, 8 million people right. killed because of deliberate starvation. Right. And in such a short period. Like, that's the crazy thing, too. If you think about it, let's say we're going to say it started in... 1930. So three years. Three years, and we'll ex- extend it to 35 conservatively for them to get the, their heart, their food supply back up. That's five years. Mm-hmm. That's it's one approximately point two something a year. Or yeah, one point five. Yeah. So. And they kept it quiet basically for mm-hmm. fifty. Well, it's not like Chernobyl where couldn't keep it. You couldn't keep that quiet. This like some people had gotten out and talked about it, but. The Soviet propaganda machine is so, like, the propaganda machine, if you have it set up, can be so powerful to hide, like, blatant truth. And, I mean, there's a couple other cases like this, mostly Latin America, that I want to cover, but I value my sanity. Um, (laughs) That you see these things and it's like, the propaganda machine is what continues it because other people are literally screaming, they're killing. Yeah, it brings you back to the status quo. Mm-hmm. It's like whenever you doubt, all you have to do is turn on the TV or find a newspaper and it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's what I'm supposed to be. Gotcha. Yeah. And it's right back to it's it's the government everywhere. It's like everywhere mm-hmm. I look, I see the Soviet Nazi, South America. Too, yeah. Like you say, are pretty good at. Yeah. So you're welcome for learning. That. No kidding. <laughs> well, I'm glad I know it because it happened. So yeah. I don't want to be unaware of something that, you know, killed five eight million people if you would have told me something happened in the last 150 years anywhere involving the death of five i would have told you i knew about it i would have guaranteed that but i didn't i didn't know i mean obviously you know about the soviet union broader context Mm -hmm. but not a happy place to live ever really russia never has been but specific to ukraine i didn't know yeah and I mean, the fact that you say the word hello to more yeah. and only a small selection of the population knows what it is really bothers me because it's it shows how good they were and how we need to be like, hey, we need to learn from this. We need to understand this and putting collectivizing great. It's not going to you know? work. And trying to save face is not 
the best way to solve problems when you're governing an entire continent people. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have a, uh, we, especially in America, we don't have a concept of that. Like, I look at the old footage of World War II. Like, I don't think we have mass starvation on a scale of millions of people. I don't think eating your own children is not something that Americans can't relate to being that. Um, I think... In some regards, the Great Depression, like the first couple of years where it was really bad, in some cases with the Dust Bowl, not the level of eating your children. That's true. But, but like now people we're, sold their children. We're also two generations removed from that now. Everyone's and then, fat and happy. Yeah. And then we also have like Indian removal policies right. is I think the other closest thing we have. That's true. I mean, I mean yeah, in, in our history, we can relate to that. But you and I, no. walking around outside to that, can't even, like, I hear eating, I hear looking in the mice houses, the mice burrows for some grain. I can't relate to that. That's not on my list. And No. Hope, uh, obviously, there are some parts of the world that can relate to that, but we mm. can't. So it's, uh, in some ways, like you say, never forget that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can, It. what does it say about whatever that I didn't even know that that was a thing? The whole story. Those five or eight million people didn't yeah. even know. I think it says a lot about how our school systems yes. view world history. And then it really says how good the Soviet propaganda machine was. Right. I mean, that's why whenever I see that appear propagandish, I like to delve into them more and figure out what are you not telling me? Oh, sure. And it's always been there. It's always it's, it's here mm-hmm. now in this country on all mm-hmm. sides, different sides. But it's not the same as coming from the state yeah. in the, the Goebbels way. So yeah. that was a good story. That was not a fun story, but that was an educational no. story for sure. So I'm glad you picked that one. I am going to have to turn yeah. on. This is one of those. I have to turn on an episode of The Office for about 20 minutes before I go to bed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you want to plug all of your plethora of shows? Yeah. Uh, thank you. I have three podcasts. I have Frozen Truth is a deep dive investigative um, r- uh, look into three unsolved missing persons cases. I went out to Wyoming for Amy Robechtel, who was a runner who disappeared. I went to Maine for a toddler. Ayla Reynolds, who disappeared from her father's care, and I went to uh, Iowa, which is right by for Jody Husentrude. She was a news anchor who was abducted from her apartment. All those, they're different levels of mystery. Some, to be honest, are less mysterious than others. Some, uh, like seasons one and three, are really mysterious. Kind of know what happened in season two, just to be honest, but you can go back <laughs> and listen to the whole series. Uh, Heather Wright and I, our friend Heather Wright, and I do a podcast called Status Pending, which is a monthly case a month research-based, investigative, unsolved, um, unresolved cases with lingering questions about them. She and I talk to law enforcement, to family members, to PIs, anybody that'll talk to us about our cases. That's been a, a gratifying, crazy experience over the last year or so. And I just launched a new one called Dead and Gone in Wyoming. It's just fun stories of as fun as stories about murder can be. Uh, not a comedy. It's research-based. It's got some history in there, some context of history of the state of It's all limited to Wyoming or a mystery, or a, I should say a murder and a missing persons case every month. And that one just launched, Dead and Gone in Wyoming. When are you getting other podcasts? When are you getting um, two and three? Heather and I have talked about starting another one. She does not need, you can't let her do that. Do not enable her to have a fourth. It, actually, at this point, she's got four, I think. It'd be fifth. Jeez. I don't know. But I think I would be doing all the back end work. Um, but uh, probably when I get a stable job. <laughs> I was going to say, that would help. at this point with Heather, friends don't let friends start podcasts. 
We have to <laughs> we have to draw the line some no, she probably We're gonna do it. Just have a a, a campaign. Don't let Heather start yes, another podcast. Right. Everybody it's a it's an intervention to supervise. She would too. If she could do nothing but podcast full time, she'd be the happiest little clam. Oh she'd yeah. She'd be just fine. I guess we all probably would too. I do like your show and again, congratulations on your success. Please have me back. This is fun. Oh yes. This is awesome. Thank you for coming on. This was overdue because I think Heather's been trying to introduce us since I met her in November. Yep. Well, we finally just had to meet in Chicago in real life. Yeah. But yeah. It's, Which is the opposite of podcast meeting normally. Yeah. It's weird because <laughs> Heather and I knew each other for like a year, probably a year before we actually met person. So it was like, I don't know if that's like how online dating used to be or <laughs> how like uh, if you play Dungeons and Dragons online or something, it's like it's mm-hmm. podcasting is like a cross between those things. But it yeah. is weird. It was weird for about five minutes to meet person in Chicago months ago, but then it was when they're just nerdy dorky. When I'm when you and I got talking about history, I was like, give me a lawn chair. I'm good. Let's just, let's hang out here for the rest of the day. Yeah. So, but. But yeah. Who will be the guest next week? I don't know. <laughs> I think I have a scheduled. Who's to say? It'll be good. Whoever it is. Can't wait to listen. Yeah. Yeah. And then go binge all of Scott's. Just go. That's your task for the week. Binge all of them. We have to bring our heads up for air out of. So, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I can't say missing and murdered women or, or my cases. Oh, man, that was good, though. It was healthy. I feel like I feel like I've uh, grown. I feel like I've learned some perspective. Okay, bye, guys. See you later. Hi, True Crime fans. I'm Erin. And I'm Shay. We host All Crime, No Cattle, a conversational podcast which focuses on true crime stories from the Lone Star State. We strive to bring you a balanced and well-researched story about Texas cases big and small. We do the research so you don't have to. We also end every episode with a good news story, just to remind everyone that real life isn't quite as depressing as true crime can make it out to be. New episodes drop every Thursday, and you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All crime, no cattle, because crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Cults of Domesticity, we're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word, or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at domestic podcasts and our instagram is at the cult of domesticity we also have podcast merch at threadless uh as well if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation we have a paypal tip jar and a patreon which has some pretty great perks any topic suggestions feel free to email us at domesticpodcasts at gmail.com remember to stay domestic and cult free